Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides. Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of short episodes with long perspectives on building the common good. Hello, I'm Daniel Prusilides, Director of Communications at CARTIS, a nonpartisan think tank dedicated to clarifying and strengthening through research and dialogue the ways in which society's institutions can work together for the common good. This is another special podcast episode diving into an issue that's always controversial, limiting personal freedoms. During a pandemic that's dragged on for almost two years, such controversies have become divisive, bitter disagreements. We've seen the results— trucker protests, ugly social media rhetoric, and defiance of public health orders, even by some houses of worship. While public health orders have affected all areas of society, including education, business, and our social lives, they've also affected religious expression and gatherings. So how well have authorities upheld religious freedom in Canada during the pandemic? How well have religious communities understood and exercised religious freedom? Cardis has stepped into this polarized debate with a new report, Reasonable Limits, How Far Does Religious Freedom Go in Canada? by University of Saskatchewan Law Professor Dwight Newman. To find a way through the extremes on either side of this issue, let me throw things over to Father Deacon Andrew Bennett, the Director of Cardis Religious Freedom and Faith Community Engagement. He'll have an extended conversation with Chris Kinsinger, a Cardis Next Gen Fellow, an Ontario lawyer, and the National Director of the Runnymede Society. So uh, it's a pleasure to have with me uh, my good friend and Cardis Next Generation Fellow, Christopher Kinsinger, to have this conversation about reasonable limits, reasonable limits on religious freedom. Is there such a thing? What do we mean by limits? What do we mean by reasonable? And so I'm uh, really glad to be with you today, uh, Chris. You've, um, in the last little while, you've written some some blazing op-eds in Canadian newspapers on questions related to limits on religious freedom during this uh, pandemic we've been uh, experiencing for the last two years. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you for having me on, Father Deacon, and, and thank you for that glowing endorsement of uh, some of what I've written. It's certainly, uh, there, there's been no shortage of grist for the mill these last two years as we think about uh, religious freedom and how, as a country, we've uh, our understanding of religious freedom has evolved in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Why don't we start right there? Uh, in the past two years, um, there have been obviously a fairly broad array of restrictions uh, that have been brought in to address uh, the spread of the pandemic. And different uh, jurisdictions across the country have brought in different restrictions. And those restrictions have impacted faith communities in a variety of different ways, but it's been quite a, an asymmetrical uh, application and effect And of course, it does raise this question of, have these restrictions been reasonable, these limits that have been placed on freedom of religion? Um, But looking back two years prior uh, to the pandemic, we certainly had similar debates around what constitutes reasonable uh, limits on religious freedom. Certainly, uh, the Quebec secularism law comes to mind, uh, the whole kerfuffle over the Canada Summer Jobs uh, program attestation that the federal government brought in some years ago. Uh, What would you say has been the change, uh, kind of from those earlier debates we were having around reasonable limits on religious freedom, and what would you say has changed in these last two years? 
I think when we look back during COVID and we, and we look at the nature of the restrictions that have been placed on, um, on, on freedom of religion and other associated freedoms, um, the, the, the distinction of what comes before, often pre-COVID, you, you would see these uh, limits being placed uh, with regard to religious content. And uh, there was often some sort of ideological tension there. And so we saw that with the Canada summer jobs uh, attestation kerfuffle, uh, as, as uh, you and the prime minister uh, referred to it as. Um, but, but there, there was very clearly this, this sort of ideological tension and attention of values. With COVID, there's not as evident of attention of values because uh, in principle, the restrictions that were being uh, applied were for public health reasons. It had nothing to do with the content of religion. Uh, but with the nature of how physical religious gatherings could result in the spread of this virus from person to person, not having anything to do with why the people were gathered, but just simply the fact that they were gathered. Uh, but I think with that, we, we've seen perhaps um, an unhealthy um, erosion of, of the culture surrounding uh, section one of the charter and the notion of reasonable limits. And some of that was there before to be sure, but I, I think there's been at times people who have been comment, uh, commenting on reasonable limits during the pandemic have taken a very superficial approach and have simply said, well, it's a pandemic. So the limit is therefore reasonable as, as if that's where the conversation stops. Yes. Uh, section one of the charter does give uh, the state and the government a fair bit of leeway when it comes to restricting and limiting charter guarantees during a public emergency such as a pandemic. But that is not where the, the uh, analysis needs to end. There has still has to be a robust analysis. And so I think for me, that's where this has been most worrying at times is uh, how the public discourse has gone and, uh, and, and a failure to grapple with the ways in which different charter guarantees uh, may be distinct and how uh, limiting freedom of religion uh, is different um, than perhaps placing limits on other uh, activities that may or may not have constitutional protection. Right, for example, so the freedom to go to, uh, we're in Ontario, so the freedom to go to the, the LCBO to pick up a bottle of wine is not guaranteed under the charter. That is not a fundamental freedom, whereas of course freedom of conscience and religion is in section 2A. But just what you said there, Chris, it raises for me two issues. The first issue is, again, hearkening back to maybe some of the limits we saw through the Canada Summer Jobs attestation, the secularism law in Quebec. Those limits didn't really impact the act of public worship. That still seemed to be sacrosanct. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the state, for whatever policy goal, was not invading that space per se. Now, I think we can all agree uh, that civil authorities do have a role when it comes to public worship. So, for example, we already accept such reasonable limits as fire codes. Yep. And, you know, a church or a synagogue or a gurdwara can only have so many people. Otherwise, you know, it becomes a, a, an issue of security and um, and certainly of, of, uh, of risks to, to life and limbs. So so I think we can all accept that. So there's that, that, there's that issue of how these limits come to uh, restrict public worship. Mm -hmm. And then the related other issue seems to be, are we dealing with civil authorities, public health officials, and so forth, who, when they impose these limits, really are rather ignorant on the nature of the activities of faith communities, particularly public worship and why public worship is so important, especially for those communities that have 
what we'll call sacramental worship, where they come together for services of communion or similar types of things that you can only do uh, collectively, not not virtually. So maybe you can, let's, why don't we comment on those two issues? Maybe the first one is now these limits seem to be impinging more on mm-hmm. uh, worship itself, and that seems to be a bit of a shift. What's your take on that? It's very interesting to think that you know, pre-COVID, the idea that uh, governments would restrict the ability of churches and other religious communities to gather for worship in such a significant way, it, it would have seemed um, seemed absurd if you had said this to me, you know, pre-December 2019, that this was going to happen, that for uh, two plus years, there would be significant restrictions placed on the ability of a church to gather as a full body. Um, I, I probably wouldn't have believed you. And then almost overnight, uh, that changed. Um, and, and you're right that before there were some of these limits uh, in place, such as fire code capacities. Uh, you know, if you want to use another extreme example, uh, you know, churches can't just uh, meet in a dilapidated warehouse where there's risk that the entire building is going to collapse on uh, the congregants. And we would all agree that that's a uh, a reasonable limit on um, on the freedom to gather in religious worship, but then COVID happens and, and we see this, this shift. And I, I don't know if we quite realized the extent of that shift and, and just how significant that was. Now, that's not to say, especially in the early days of the pandemic, that there may not have been cause uh, to, to limit the size of religious gatherings as with other gatherings. Um, but again, we seem to have uh, fallen headlong in some ways into this uh, new normal and without the stopping to kind of pick that apart, it's going to be interesting to see uh, how we come out of that. And thankfully, we're starting to see these restrictions across Canada uh, being lifted. But there's a real conversation that the church and religious other religious communities need to have right now about uh, what we take away from all of this and uh, um, how we conceive of our own you know, civic freedom uh, to gather and worship. Uh, because this may not be the last time uh, this happens. There may be other pandemics, and who knows? There, it, you know, we're we're witnessing uh, disruption of of public order in many ways right now. Um, could this be setting the ground for uh, other limits on on peaceful assemblies? It remains to be seen. Well, you have of course brilliantly anticipated the recommendations in our paper that uh, that Dwight Newman wrote for us on this question of reasonable limits, and one of those recommendations relates back to what I was saying earlier, and that is. How do we ensure that faith communities and the civil authorities, the highly secularized civil authorities, mm-hmm. that they are engaging on an ongoing basis, not just within uh, a time of crisis, such as we've been experiencing? Because again, it seems that, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, there's a, a wide kind of asymmetry of approaches that different provinces have taken in terms of imposing restrictions on, on religious worship. Mm-hmm. Certainly in our own province of Ontario, uh, although the level, the, the capacity levels have been fluctuating, the number of people that can attend religious worship has been has been shifting throughout the past two years. For all intents and purposes, uh, places of worship have been a- able, if they choose to, have been able to be open since June of 2020. Uh, but that has not been the case in provinces such as British Columbia, or even most recently in Quebec, where Quebec uh, shut down all places of public worship uh, just after Christmas through the month of January and into the beginning of this month of February, 2022. So how do we, you know, in the, in, in the desire of having an ongoing dialogue and having this ongoing relationship 
uh, between faith communities and government, how do we, first of all, ensure that our, our civic authorities, our public health officials, other officials are well-informed about what faith communities do, why they do it, how they do it, and that they do it in very different ways. Mm -hmm. um, so there's an asymmetry, obviously, within types of public worship. Sikh worship is not the same as Jewish worship, is not the same as Catholic worship, and is not the same as evangelical Protestant worship. So how do you convey that? And then secondly, you know, how do you really try and ensure um, that faith communities also understand that there are such things as reasonable limits, um, that there's the exercise of that wonderful virtue of prudence, that, you know, a distancing and masking is not such an unreasonable limit. Um, so how do we how do we sort of ensure those things? How do we ensure that that dialogue uh, grows and uh, and develops? Because obviously it's been a bit of a scattershot approach across the country. Uh, yeah, I, I think there there are two you know parts to my answer to, to that question, and and the first part kind of goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, which is uh, you know you alluded that the government often. Uh, and government leaders and policymakers don't often understand religious communities. And as someone who, um, as, a, as a deacon at my church, and who was helping to navigate all these regulations as they were coming out, one of the things that frustrated me when I was reading the Ontario regulations was that it became very evident that the people who wrote them had no idea what goes on uh, in, in a church service or in a religious service. And so in, entire categories, um, it, it was very artificial and you would try to you know, for example, take uh, a youth group meeting and you would try to figure out where that falls within the regulations. And it was not made clear uh, at all where that fell. And so I, I think as a start, we need to uh, respectfully and, and in a constructive way, we need to make sure that uh, policymakers are listening to religious communities and understand uh, that they need to be actively consulting with religious communities as they draft, uh, you know, God forbid, but if there's another uh, public emergency of this nature, as they draft regulations in response, we need to make sure that they are actually um, uh, applicable to churches and places of worship as they conduct um, their activities. Um, so, you know, that's the first part. But then, yes, I think there's also the second part where we need to help those, uh, and I'm speaking specifically now for Christians within the church, understand the nature of religious freedom and understand uh, why as Christians we value religious freedom and other associated freedoms, such as freedom of peaceful assembly and expression and the like. And I think there's a need here to move away from some of the more uh, superficial and, and simplistic understandings of freedom that often arise and, and that often uh, we see thrown around, especially on social media, where it's a very all or nothing uh, sort of understanding of freedom and to step back and to say, well, no, freedom isn't, isn't an all or nothing proposition. There are restrictions that are placed on our freedom all the time. Again, we, we go back to fire codes. That's, that's a minimalist example. Um, so, so we need to have prudence and we need to be able to recognize that there may be times when, um, when there are reasonable limits, yes, that are placed on freedom. So you mentioned masking and distancing as two potential examples of that. Um, but beyond that, um, th this is going to help, uh, Christians and, and other people of faith, uh, more, um, be, be more articulate in, in terms of how they express why they do, 
what they do is, is valuable and distinct from other activities. And, and again, I mentioned here, we're not just dealing with freedom of religion, we're dealing with other associated freedoms. So a religious gathering is not only different from going to the LCBO or something of that nature, uh, it may also be different from other types of peaceful assemblies. You know, there's an argument to be made here uh, that coming together for a community hockey game would be protected by Section 2C of the Charter as a peaceful assembly. Um, but I think it's also fair to say that a religious gathering is, is still distinct from that because it also engages the Section 2A guarantee of religious freedom. And so when we look to Section 1 and we think about the nature of, of reasonable limits, I think we also have to be mindful of how multiple guarantees that are uh, being exercised simultaneously can have this sort of compounding effect. And so as, as Christians, we need to find a way uh, to articulate that uh, to policymakers and to those in positions of civic authority that, that helps them to understand that we are, we are trying to exercise these freedoms uh, in a way that, that matters and that it matters in terms of how our law has been drafted that, uh, that these freedoms, um, that we recognize the ways in which they are distinct and, and we recognize why they are important. And how we articulate um, you know, what we do as, as faithful people to public authorities, there's a particular uh, way of doing that, obviously. Mm -hmm. And um, I think often we find ourselves, uh, because we're conscious of the secularization that is around us and that we're dealing with, in many cases, people that are very secular and maybe don't have a full understanding of, of the role of faith and so forth, especially in our public life. Uh, but sometimes we can, we can engage in a bit of a us versus them, uh, where... Uh, you know, the government doesn't understand us. And so we have mm -hmm. to adopt this somewhat combative stance and religious freedom is an all or nothing. It's a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is not productive. Uh, so how then, uh, what, is the, what is the right sort of disposition for faith communities when they're engaging government and how can we communicate with government in a way that is first of all, strategic, mm -hmm. but also in a way that is let's say formative, where we help government to understand, here's who we are. Uh, so I think for a very long time, especially as Christians, we've assumed too much. We've assumed that uh, the people we're speaking to and we're engaging government on a whole range of issues, understand who we are. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think uh, we need to adopt a bit of a different approach. So um, what would you say to that? I mean, how, how would we adopt a more strategic engagement of, of civil authority in a way that is going to be well-received and is going to foster uh, the greater dialogue that we call for in, in Dwight's paper? Uh, as a start, as Christians, I think we can, we can look to the exhortations in scripture to pray for those uh, in positions of authority and to give honor to those in positions of authority. So that, that's the starting point is we, we can't fall into this sort of anti-statist uh, position where we look at uh, the civil magistrate uh, to use the, the language of scripture as our enemy. Uh, we, we need to look to them, uh, to those in positions of civil authority as, as being ministers of God, because that's what scripture says. So I think that's our starting point that we want to work with rather than against. Uh, and then to help uh, civil authorities understand uh, Christians and, and the church, we need to articulate our shared values. So within the context of the pandemic, uh, as a good example, I think we can say, uh, we share your desire to protect people. We don't want people to get sick. We don't want people um, to, to, get, uh, to die because of this virus. So we want to do what we can to help further 
public health, but we want to do so in a way that also recognizes the inherent value of what we are doing. And so at that stage, it comes, uh, th- there's need to be uh, winsome and persuasive in demonstrating why a religious gathering is going back to what I said a few moments ago, distinct from something like say a community hockey game. Uh, That's not to say that, you know, community gatherings aren't important, but to say that to the life of a, of a person of faith gathering in a faith-based community and partaking of religious rites and sacraments is crucial to that aspect of their identity. And to deny that uh, has a very adverse effect on, on who they are uh, as a person. And so as part of that is, you know, one of the things that Professor Newman uh, discusses in his, uh, in his report uh, for Curtis is uh, the, the Oaks test and, and the nature of the Oaks test. And so one of the points that I made in a recent editorial in the National Post, uh, and, and this is something, a point I originally made about a year ago, is with the nature of proportionality, the balance can shift over time. And so one thing that I think the church can be doing when it comes to COVID is to be saying, as the, the longer restrictions on religious gathering uh, are imposed, and, and the more we, the longer we have to deal with this, the cost on people of faith and religious communities is only going to grow greater. And presumably, if some of these measures work, and I think there is compelling evidence that they have uh, to an extent, uh, the relative benefit of the measures is going to decrease. And so even if we say at the outset of the pandemic or a year into the pandemic that Uh, the reasonable limits test has been met under section one, that's not necessarily going to be the case forever. And so we also need to be in a posture where we're able to engage in an ongoing dialogue. And and that's going to require humility. And it may require some situations in which uh, believers have to say, I I don't, uh, as a matter of wisdom, uh, agree with what's being uh, imposed here. We may think that it's too onerous. Uh, but ultimately, we also have to recognize that we are not the ones uh, who have been given this authority uh, over the public health of the nation and that those who wield authority are going to be accountable for that authority. So I think uh, adding a healthy dose of humility into that as well uh, would go a long way in terms of how, as the church, uh, we relate to the civil authorities. Well, this this raises this question of you're talking about the shifting nature of um, of proportionality and and the proportional response uh, in with the state imposing these limits, mm-hmm. and that can shift over time. And uh, I want to bring up the the situation in Quebec, where uh, you know the the imposition of uh, not only uh, ma- vaccine mandates to mm-hmm. gain access to public worship, um, and that was imposed uh, without caveat. Uh, mm-hmm. in Quebec um, at the end of last year. And then the the complete uh, shuttering of places of, of public worship, as I mentioned, uh, the beginning of 2022, and that has just been lifted just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're now in, in mid-February 2022. What we're dealing with in uh, February 2022 is not what we were dealing with in March of 2020, uh, you know, where we now have upwards of 80% of the population fully vaccinated in the province of Quebec. Um, You know, we have seen that the various measures that were brought in, uh, what we might call reasonable restrictions, have have had uh, a desired effect. Um, But now we're seeing, obviously, uh, across the board, as you say, provinces sort of competing to see who can eliminate the restrictions the fastest. And now Mm -hmm. the province of Quebec has, you know, again, to their credit, removed uh, the imposition of vaccine passports for public worship. 
but given that that issue of proportionality, and obviously citizens are observing what's going on, uh, that something is very different, especially around uh, vaccination rates between now in 2022 and what we were dealing with in March 2020, where there were a lot of unknowns. When do you hit a red line? Mm-hmm. Would you say when do you hit a red line where uh, that proportionality has gone out the window and really the restrictions are imposing um, an unrealistic burden uh, upon people in terms of limiting uh, and restricting their rights? You know, where do you hit that red line and how how do you determine that? When does the limit become unreasonable? I mean, we've got the Oaks test, certainly, but just from a from a sort of the, the man in the street perspective, I think there's a lot of common sense where people say, and I think, you know, uh, we see people across the country that are sort of saying enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we how do we recognize that reality when we're dealing with a legal concept such as reasonable limits? I think as you know, as a starting point, it, it's healthy when we again we earlier on in in our discussion we talked about the culture surrounding section one. So I think it's good for us. Um, to think more broadly about section one beyond the confines of the Oaks test. And that's not to say that the Oaks test um, uh, doesn't have its uses, but one of the points that's been made by legal scholars such as Derek Ross and Brian Bird is that uh, section one not only provides a basis on which to limit rights and freedoms, but it also serves to guarantee those rights and freedoms. And that's what the language of section one says. Uh, and, And Brian Bird in particular, uh, has has noted that uh, we assume that uh, that section one states that uh, all rights and freedoms uh, may be subject to reasonable limits, but that's not actually what it says. It uh, it lays out the standard by which rights and freedoms may be subject to uh, reasonable limits. So there may be uh, certain rights and freedoms that may never be subject to reasonable limits, and those that that we have seen can be subject to reasonable limits, like religious freedom. That doesn't also mean. Uh, that there aren't going to be situations in which uh, certain types of restrictions are never justified. So when we think about uh, you know a red line, I, I think this is again where it's helpful for uh, for believers and for the church to be able to articulate um, d- degrees of restriction and and why it's different to, for example, say to a church, uh, you have to gather at twenty five percent capacity or fifty percent capacity versus telling a church that they need to uh, require proof of vaccination from everyone who walks in the door. And, and there, that, that's where we need to be uh, very um, strategic and, and, and very nuanced in what we're articulating here, because one of the things that we've done throughout the pandemic is we've made comparisons between places of worship and other uh, similar settings, such as you know movie theaters and the like. So we need to be able to say to civil authorities, okay, this is why it's uh, it's not okay to expect proof of vaccination from someone attending a church versus someone going to the movies. Because the big r- line that's been crossed there, in my view, is that by, by saying that those who come into the church and participate in its worship must produce proof of that vaccination, you're setting a standard by which the state is effectively excommunicating, albeit perhaps temporarily, right. certain members of the church. And there's just no comparison between that and, say, going to a movie theater. And again, I think we can make a similar argument when it comes to total prohibitions on places of worship and to say, uh, are there not ways that we can, you know, make accommodations, right? That we can have, you know, perhaps a hard cap set on gatherings that nevertheless still allows people to 
gather. And I myself, uh, my own church, uh, about a year ago, when we were in one of our lockdowns, when we couldn't have these big in-person gatherings, we would regularly have small gatherings of 10 people, and we would have numerous gatherings uh, throughout the week. It's not ideal, but it's, it's still recognizing that there is um, a core value to physically being together in person and coming together in person and recognizing that and, and not all faith traditions uh, would necessarily uh, take this stance, but, but many um, within the Christian, uh, within Christian denominations would say that things like the Lord's Supper uh, cannot be administered virtually and has to be done uh, in person. And so again, being able to accommodate that in a way, and that recognizes the importance of those sorts of rites and sacraments within the life of a believer uh, is important. And so we need to find a way uh, to articulate that uh, such that policymakers and those in positions of authority are going to recognize where we're coming from. Well, it's interesting that uh, looking at the United States during this same period, there's been a lot more litigation uh, on religious liberty grounds uh, I'm thinking in particular of an early case involving Capitol Hill Baptist Church in mm-hmm. uh, my, my second home of Washington, D.C. Um, and there's been a lot more uh, going through the U.S. courts, challenging restrictions, challenging, uh, you know, reasonable limits, challenging proportionality. Uh, in Canada, we haven't seen uh, the same degree of litigiousness. Uh, there are a couple of cases going through now, including a few in your neck of the woods uh, around uh, sort of Kitchener-Waterloo area. Mm-hmm. What's your read on that? Um, why have there been fewer cases uh, challenging the reasonable limits, uh, challenging the limits? Are they reasonable? Are they unreasonable? Applying the Oaks test. Mm-hmm. And again, for our listeners, uh, the Oaks test is, is the means, it's a somewhat controversial means at times, uh, the means by which... Um, the question of, of section one uh, reasonable limits can be adjudicated. Um, you know, why are we not seeing the same degree of, of litigation in Canada? Um, and now that restrictions are, are being reduced and uh, eventually, you know, hopefully eliminated, what's mm-hmm. the future of any sort of litigation that might come forward? Will it be uh, sort of uh, nostalgic? <laughs> what, what's your sense of, of where we might be going you know, it's interesting you raise uh, Capitol Hill Baptist. I um, I was in D.C. back in November and quite unplanned. I, I went there um, in the evening and I had an opportunity uh, to meet uh, afterwards with uh, their lead pastor, Mark Dever, and to meet with some of the other uh, brothers who are associated with that church, such as uh, Jonathan Lehman. And, and I do think... Um, uh, David French wrote a really great article last year, just talking about uh, the wisdom that that particular church showed in how they approached uh, the litigation. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that because uh, we, we do have to be very strategic uh, as Christians and as the church when we engage in litigation. Uh, there's a there's a need to remember that we need to be good litigants, and so we need to be sympathetic litigants. And so how we approach the build up to litigation matters just as much as the litigation itself. And and you know um, you, you mentioned that there's litigation that's gone on here in in Ontario, and I, I won't name name specific churches, but I, I do think at times we have seen uh, perhaps a lack of wisdom in, in how litigation is approached because, again, going back earlier in our conversation, that there's been an approach to these issues that is very all or nothing. Uh, if my, this, this sense that if my religious freedom or my freedom of peaceful assembly is being limited even a little bit, that this is unconscionable. And so when churches uh, refuse to abide by any kind of limitation and then go 
try to litigate, um, that can create problems. And it, it shouldn't be the case that only sympathetic litigants succeed. But the reality is, this is just the nature of litigation. You need to make sure uh, that uh, that litigants um, are sympathetic, and uh, and that they are um, they haven't just simply uh, in, engaged in these tactics of uh, refusing to comply with any kind of limitation. So um, I, I think, you know, in Canada, one of the reasons perhaps you didn't see as much litigation is, is these restrictions, uh, when they were at their worst, they tended to come in spurts. And so we would have them for several weeks to, you know, two to three months, and then they would be rolled back again. And so it was more difficult um, to ramp up litigation in time and uh, and these restrictions as they were imposed, uh, many times they were extended, but they were originally envisioned as, as short-term policies. And so that creates a very practical question for a church of, okay, you know, uh, we've been complying, we've been trying to do our best, we have concerns about the constitutionality of these policies, uh, but do we now uh, come together uh, or, or as individuals, are we going to... S- take this enormous expense on to litigate to get possibly an additional two, three, four weeks uh, to be able to gather together before the restrictions would have been lifted anyway. So there's a very difficult uh, wisdom issue there. And, and I think if you know there's anything that we can kind of take away from this is that there was perhaps a need throughout the pandemic um, for churches to come together a little bit more. And, and there are practical ways in which the expense of litigation can be shared. And, and if you can uh, find churches that make for good sympathetic litigants and have them uh, join together. There's there's a possibility there um, that these sort of challenges might have been brought uh, where they weren't. Um, we'll see if that happens again in the future. Hopefully, the worst of the pandemic is behind us, and and Lord willing, we will never have to deal with these kind of you know restrictions of this nature for any reason in the future. But if that day does come, and we do, there's going to need to be, I think. Uh, a coming together and, and a strategicness in terms of how uh, churches approach uh, the prospect of litigation and to seek to avail ourselves of the freedoms which our constitution guarantees. Well, that is uh, wisdom indeed. So it's good. Uh, I appreciate our conversation today, Chris. And as we do move out of this uh, time of restrictions, as March uh, is just down the road, uh, we look forward to uh, continuing to exercise all of our fundamental freedoms robustly and recognize that with those freedoms come responsibilities to uh, to be good citizens, to engage our civil authorities in a way that is respectful and also uh, a way that seeks to uh, inform them about the role of faith communities. So uh, thank you again very much for your time today. I enjoyed our conversation and I'm sure we will have uh, many more, my fellow deacon. Thank you, brother. As always, it was a pleasure. That brings us to the end of this special episode. If you'd like to reach us, that's easy. Just write to media at cardus.ca. Cardus is spelled C-A-R-D-U-S. Thanks for listening.